Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Robert Cinch with us, with Amherst Pierpont. We were distracted by Morgan Stanley. Let's go back to simply dollar dynamics. A number of people said it's just about a weak dollar. Um, can you bet either way on dollar right now? You know, we've been a little more optimistic on the dollar, and uh, and obviously we've been wrong. And I think a lot of that has been uh, shifting expectations and data coming out of the U.S. side. So I think in that context, yes, this is a weak dollar. Um, it's weak pretty much across the board. Uh, maybe it's in a in a tie with the British pound because that's a, a weak relative currency also. But clearly, um, you know, the markets don't like uncertainty. And there is a lot of uncertainty in the U.S. environment right now, and a lot of it emanates from the political side. Uh, and also probably a little bit of uncertainty now on the monetary side because the inflation numbers just haven't justified uh, continued movements by the Fed, which I think is critical for the dollar to move higher. I always like talking to you about Japan, and I noticed in a lot of uh, analyst notes, strategist notes this morning, talk of a death cross with dollar uh, yen. What are you seeing when you look at that pair? You know, I think that of of all the currency pairs you look at, the one that historically has been most driven by interest rate differentials is dollar yen. And clearly with, uh, with U.S. yields, particularly 10-year yields coming down, the yield curve flattening here in the U.S., uh, you're just not getting the impetus for that big capital outflow out of Japan. Uh, Japan does continue to run a very large current account surplus. So you need capital flows out of Japan, and the U.S. interest rate dynamics just aren't justifying those flows. So, you know, the, 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 w without those capital flows, dollar-yen just continues to drip lower. ECB meeting tomorrow. Uh, I imagine that we're going to see that 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 bank sort of stay the stay the course. What are you going to be listening for when Mario Draghi speaks on the heels of that meeting tomorrow? Uh, I, I think uh, to see how much time Mario Draghi can use up without really saying anything. I think that they're not He's good ready at that. To, to, be fair, to be fair, yeah, he he is very good at that. Yes, uh, I, I don't think there's a lot of you know timing wise. This is a tough time for them to have a meeting. They usually don't like to decide anything in in uh, in the summer months. In addition, you know, they're, they're kind of the asset purchase program is, is set through December. And I think they want to get as much information as possible before they make any decisions. My guess has always been that September is when they'll make an announcement about what happens after December. And based on what we see right now, I think they probably have yeah. their rate of asset purchases from 60 to 30 for the first half of next year. I want to rip up the script. Greg Villiers just published on what we have in Washington. And he's, Greg's been as grim as he's been in 10 years over the last two weeks. How does all this play into your investment world and particularly the debt ceiling? What's to come? The reality that Republicans and Democrats possibly may have to do business together. That's got to be unstable for growth and for the markets. It's got to, at some point, filter in. 
Well, you know, sometimes a, uh, we might say a common enemy brings people together. Unfortunately, you know, the White House may now be filling that role, um, bringing, it, bringing us to a point where Republicans and Democrats have to agree on something. You know, the debt ceiling is critical because I think right now the international community does not have a lot of confidence <clears throat> in U.S. policy. And we have a memory of what happened five years ago, four years ago, right? Exactly. And I think that Okay, if you don't reform the health care process, that's one thing. If you don't get tax, tax reform, reform yeah, that's yeah. another thing. But but if you if you can't move forward on the debt ceiling, I think that would bring another whole level of uncertainty surrounding U.S. policy, U.S. assets, and the dollar. Okay, Bob Sims, thank you so much. Greatly, particularly your perspective on global Wall Street and uh, what we saw from Morgan Stanley this morning. Mr. Sinch is with Amherst Pierpont. The right guy at the right time. We speak to Donald Stressheim with Mr. Mnuchin and other worthy speaking. 8.30-ish, is that, David? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. We'll carry uh, Secretary Mnuchin's comments live here on, uh, on Bloomberg yeah. Surveillance. Mr. Stressheim, on the China watch for 400 years, he goes back to like the tank, the Thang dynasty or the Han <laughs> dynasty or something like that. Don, this came up over a beverage of my choice this weekend. Why has there never been a hard landing? Everybody's predicted hard landings in China for at least the past 15 years. We haven't gotten there yet, have we? We haven't gotten there. Why? I don't. I don't think we're likely to because it's still a command and control economy, um, and the uh, key to it, I think, still remains that um, the financial sector is state-run. They carved the uh, big SOE banks out of the Ministry of Finance in 1990, not to make loans to you and I uh, or to our companies, but to make loans to other big state-owned enterprises. They're making steel today for which there's no demand. They either stack it up in the back lot or dump it on the uh, global markets, and that's uh, part of the issue in Washington uh, today. Yeah, they've got this meeting today, leadership from both countries getting together to talk about this economic relationship. Is it possible to put North Korea aside? And if so, uh, what constructively can these two countries agree on when it comes to the economy right now? Um, Well, so China wants to import a lot more high-tech products for which we think there are potentially military applications and when we are unwilling to uh, do so. So that's going to be hard. We've got a lot of LNG. They will buy as much as we will sell them. I think we're over the idea that we can't sell uh, fossil fuels to uh, China. Um, they're going to agree, have already, on uh, beef exports, mm-hmm. U.S. to China. We're good at agriculture. They're not. So these are areas of, uh, of agreement, but uh, they have their own agenda and we have ours and they're not uh, perfectly coincident. Looking at your note here, you talk about the, the biggest risks here going forward uh, and, and you put them down in shorthand. Let's read between the lines a little bit here. You say precipitous, thoughtless actions and misinterpretation. Uh, I can't help but think of that tweet that the president fired off a few weeks ago. Uh, vis-a-vis North Korea talking about how we had to try with, with China and didn't, it didn't work out. What's your sense of the strength of this relationship? The president <clears throat> said at Mar-a-Lago he was committed to this new friendship he had with his Chinese uh, counterpart. Do, do you get the sense that he and his administration are investing in that relationship? No, this is like President uh, Bush um, look, uh, having a, his first meeting with Putin and saying, I, uh, I could see his soul through his eyes. 
So the Mar-a-Lago meeting was a useful get-together. Uh, first meeting is not a time in which you make a deal. Uh, they talk to each other. That's fine. They came up with this idea, well, uh, let's have a second 100 days. It was at, basically at the end of the first 100 days. And um, and so uh, that's this comprehensive economic dialogue, this dialogue that's happening uh, today. Um, but there's no great uh, relationship there. And I do not believe that Washington is going to get what it wants out of China, which is for China to strangle economically North Korea to ostensibly get them to stop their nuclear and missile What program. is China's incentive <clears throat> to accommodate the requests of Navarro-Ross economics? I can't figure out the motivation, the first order condition for them to sit up straight at the table and say, we would consider this. Where, where, where is that? I, I quite frankly don't think there is any great uh, okay. intersection uh, here. Um, Washington has uh, has its agenda uh, very different. We backed away. We are we Washington. Uh, Washington the U.S. is now in this bilateral mindset. No more uh, multilateral. So it's either going to be us and China or us and somebody else. And, uh, so TPP is dead, and any kind of multilateral is uh, dead. I think that's uh, that's a bad sign, not a good one. Let me rip up the script a little bit here. Usually Tom's the one doing that, but I'll do it this morning. And uh, Tom alluded to the fact I was in Idaho last week for the Allen & Company <clears throat> a conference there and talked to a number of people who are in AI and autonomous vehicles, and a lot of them have a lot of enthusiasm for uh, what could happen for electric cars in the Chinese uh, marketplace. I know you've looked into this uh, a little bit as well. How transformative could that be uh, socially, environmentally, economically, uh, to have more widespread adoption of electric vehicles uh, um, in China. Massively transformative. They are building their uh, recharging grid, if you will, uh, uh, mechanism as fast as, uh, as they can. Uh, they're in the lead in terms of penetration now. They will continue to be. Uh, they have a giant air pollution problem. Uh, oil is used in China only really for two things as a petrochemical feedstock and as a transportation fuel, if they can knock a big share of the transportation fuel out by going electric, and uh, they uh, then need to make sure that the electricity generation is done by renewable, not uh, by coal. And as they do that, um, this will make a big difference how much difference it makes in the oil markets, I'd leave to others who are more more oil experts. But this is going to be a big change. Back to something you were talking about uh, with regard to military technology, telecommunications technology. A couple of years back, I was in a conference room at a Westin in Shanghai, and a guy from Huawei was there talking about his desire to get <laughs> Huawei products into the to the U.S. And I was struck by how glacially that process seemed to be moving along, but how much that company wanted to be in this marketplace. Have concerns about uh, back ends and all of that stuff. Have they ebbed a little bit with this administration? Do you sense this administration here in the U.S. is more willing uh, to weigh allowing Chinese-made telecommunications military products into the U.S.? I think they are more willing, but I think there's a price to that. And the price to that is for some kind of uh, aggregate progress, macro progress mm -hmm. on the trade balance. And until uh, they see that, I don't think these right. Chinese companies have much of a chance mm. here. How does their steel come into our country? I don't know. Did they just unload it off a boat in Long Beach and there it is? Uh, sure. They, um, 
they export a lot of steel uh, around the world, uh, actually not as much uh, to us as we might think, and they don't produce any specialty steel so to this, speak of. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned this. They don't produce specialty steel. Right. It's really basic. I get that idea. Are Mr. Mnuchin and, and Mr. Ross talking about the steel price or the unit of steel coming into America? I think they're I think they're well, I think they're mostly talking about the uh the volume. The unit, the unit That's volume. Right. The, yes. the stuff. The stuff. And um so China is the biggest steel consumer mm. and biggest steel producer in the world by far. They decided in about uh, the year 2000, uh, even earlier, we're going to use a lot of steel to build our infrastructure. Let's make it, not buy it. And so unfortunately now they uh, have uh, far more steel capacity than they need. And we're trying to get them to shut it down. And uh, but these um, these state owned enterprises are employment well, agencies, not right. profit maximizers. They're Don, not going to shut them. Thank you so much, Don Stress. I'm with us with Evercore ISI. Just a per- just really honored you could come into our studios. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of A M L dot com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated. Someone could always, always, always talk to about the greater sprawl of American economics with a wonderful perspective of North Dakota State and the A&M College of Texas is Douglas Duncan. He is the zero BS economist at Fannie Mae. Are you under pressure? And he joins us in our studios, which is a great and beautiful um, thing. Are you under pressure by Fannie Mae to do like any kind of tone about housing? I get this question when you're on all the time. I don't buy it for a minute, but... No, you know, when, I, like, I, when I was hired by the company, I yeah. had a big conversation with the CEO, Dan Mudd, at that time. And yeah. I said, exactly what do you expect me to do for you? You're going to hire me, pay me some money. What do you want from me? We had a long conversation. At the end, he said, well, I guess what we need is somebody that can call BS on us when we're reading yeah. our own press releases. <laughs> yeah. So that's okay. I'm intended to have an independent point of view. So the answer is no. I in don't the, in the chair you were in yesterday is Jonathan Miller, who's the best appraisal guy I know. And he says the same thing you say. There's no housing stock, and particularly there's no housing stock right. for people that have merely mortal incomes. The poor people making 180 or 200,000 mm-hmm. a, a year. Where is the national policy to house people in California? To house people 47 miles outside Washington who are stuck in traffic on their commute, hopefully listening to 99.1 FM. <laughs> Where is the housing policy? For mere mortals. Yeah, it's uh, it's really not there. Uh, one of the things that, that we're being encouraged to do by our regulator is to find ways which are fiscally prudent and also from an underwriting credit prudent, if there's anything that we can do to enable credit. But I will say this, at this point in the economic cycle, you have to be really careful with that because with the supply shortage, if we ease credit conditions, we could lead to a pro-cyclical rise in house prices, Fair. which in the downturn uh, could but be But we're talking the distribution 
of square footage of where we Understood. sleep. I, I, had a, I mean, I look at the Wall Street Journal mansion section on Fridays is almost obscene. <laughs> right. It's no different than Victoria's Secrets or, or whatever. <laughs> where is our policy to get three bedrooms, two baths that somebody can afford? Yeah, part of the problem is is that a lot of the restrictions on development are local. So you, there's not really a federal law that you can pass. You need to attack it jurisdiction by jurisdiction. Take, for example, recently somebody from San Jose sent me a picture of a two-bedroom, one-bath house uh, that sold for $1.2 to your point about uh, uh, starter homes. And if you look across every market, it's the same story. If within market you compare low-priced home pace of appreciation compared to middle-priced home compared to upper price, in every jurisdiction – uh, the low-priced homes are appreciating fastest, which tells you the demand is there for entry level, but there's just not supply. Talking with Doug Duggan of uh, Fannie Mae here, chief economist at Fannie Mae's. We await comments from the Secretary of the Treasury, Stephen Mnuchin, and uh, from Secretary of Commerce, Wilbur Ross, as well. We'll bring you those uh, live when they take place in Washington at that U.S.-China Comprehensive Economic uh, Dialogue. Doug Duggan, let me ask you about the housing starts numbers that uh, Vinny Del Giudice just uh, mentioned. What import do you give them? What do they tell you about the health of the U.S. housing market? Well, first of all, they're right on what our forecast is. It's That's uh, right where we expect this year to be. Uh, that's two hundred and fifty to 350,000 housing starts less than what demographics suggest we should be building. And that ignores the catch-up in household formation from the very low levels during the middle of the crisis. So uh, just to get back to normal, we need to see uh, construction rise. So that number doesn't do that. So I expect to see strong house price appreciation continue. The, the trick here is the Fed's tightening, late cycle, uh, you see some slowing in economic activity. What happens uh, if uh, inflation numbers don't come to where the Fed wants to go and they, they start shrinking their portfolio and they continue to tighten and you tip over? Actually, housing would do pretty well in that environment because what would happen is demand would slow some, so the pace of price appreciation would slow. Rates would not rise. Mm. And so housing could actually be a support in a mild recession. How much rates anxiety is there out there as we hear the Fed talk about raising rates for those who are considering or buying homes? Uh, how much worry or concern is there, do you, do you detect, in terms I, of sentiment I, about that? Yeah, it's only on the refi side. And frankly, with all the policy-induced refinances that we've had, there's really not a lot of, uh, of demand f for that forward. So we see the refi piece as dropping off. Actually, the, the existing coupons, uh, that is interest rates on mortgages mm -hmm. out there to refinance, are in a very narrow band because rates have been for so long, low so long, in order to get a refinance boom, you'd have to get the 10-year treasury uh, under about one and a quarter, which we don't mm -hmm. certainly don't see that unless there was a real serious recession. If it goes above uh, two and a half, then right. you probably see a big drop off in refinance. Uh, Doug Duncan joining us <laughs> in our studios with uh, Fannie Mae. Uh, their chief economist. Dr. Duncan, let me ask you just about sort of what you're seeing regionally. You keep a, a good watch on the country as, as a whole. How much of the, the housing terrain is shifting? Where are we seeing growth? What parts of the country are we seeing growth in? Well, there's no, uh, no question it is a, uh, very much a regional issue. And, and um, my earlier comment about the potential of a recession, we would see that as a regional mm. uh, event. One of the things that we're seeing is, uh, for example, in the San Francisco area, the the high end of house prices is actually coming down. So you've, you've sort of seen the top of that market come out, and I think some of the similar things maybe in New York, uh, where the top end of the market is starting to come down. A question there is, when the Fed starts to remove liquidity, 
is there going to be an impact on, say, the venture capital mm-hmm. space? Will, and will you see some reduction in liquidity available to some of those firms so it might play out in an employment space? So I think that's one of the things to think about. Um, uh, overall, you have a lot of structural shift taking place in retail, which is actually leading to, at the margin, some shifts to places which can be distribution centers, hmm. I flew out to the Midwest, and one of the places that we flew over had these huge warehouses, which are actually uh, regional distribution points for people like Amazon Hmm. and places like that. So you're seeing in the industrial property area, you're seeing some shifts in valuation by different kinds of uh, properties because of some of the structural shifts taking place in in retail. So I think you'll – and those places where the distribution centers are often more affordable. And so you're seeing mm. some job arrangement uh, and housing changes in those spaces. I, it's, uh, it's good fortune to have you here. We've got China talking right now with a Chinese official speaking, and uh, perhaps Secretary Ross will wander by here uh, in a minute. Um, Doug Duncan, you grew up with the fabric of the Midwest upon you, North Dakota State down to Texas A&M. And that huge agricultural region moves a lot of product abroad. Mm-hmm. To me, it's almost simplistic in Washington. In Washington, they almost think like food comes in saran wrap out of the produce <laughs> section at Whole Foods or, you know, whatever, the Wegmans, whatever. Right. I, I mean, export of agriculture is still fundamental it, to it a huge body of this country. Yeah, it's something on the order of 40% of our exports are, are agricultural in nature. There's the whole question of trade and how we structure trade is – um, is a pretty critical issue for U.S. economic activity, not just in agriculture, but as an example, I have a, one of my vice presidents has a 2012 Audi A6, and in the bumper there's this it's little pretty plug. rich for Fannie Mae. Uh, you know, <laughs> what can I say? He's a good VP, so I try to keep him around. But he has a plug in his bumper, which was intended to be a camera, which showed on your dashboard where you were going when you backed up, but that camera wasn't there in 2012 because of the tsunami and nuclear meltdown in Japan. So I use that as an example because it shows the food chain that is global, whether it's in agriculture or whether it's in automobiles. We now have a global supply chain. And when you start to discuss reorienting trade, I think it was it was really signal that one of the first people into Trump's office after he became president was the CEO of Ford Motor because they're in that same global supply chain. So, um, no question, ag policy, fundamental to economic growth because of the mm-hmm. export components of it. Uh, and and that, relatively few people in Washington have ever uh, brought a chicken's life to an end mm. to, to make it show up in, uh, in the grocery store. They do the, that in Brooklyn every week. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. David well, goes maybe in different the, issues. The new David thing. Goes yeah, Prospect gets, Park. We trudge out to Prospect Park. It's a great learning experience. To artisanal <laughs> yeah. farm. So we, start, we start young. Your, your kids watch this. Oh. <laughs> Searing. Uh, Doug, let me ask you about how strong the connective tissue is between the, the labor economy and the housing economy at, at this time. We had Michael McKee in Boston a few uh, weeks ago talking about the skills gap uh, and how even a place like Boston with access to all these educational institutions is uh, struggling to find people to do certain jobs. It makes you wonder about other parts of, of the country uh, as well. How does that play into the housing market, uh, the skills gap? Yeah, well, you, you, you've you seen an increasing share of builders over the last several years say they can't find skilled labor. Well, 
it, there's two things going on there. Uh, one is if the ratio of skilled to unskilled labor is fixed and everyone's trying to increase output, then necessarily the demand and the unsatisfied demand for skilled labor will increase, mm. right? It takes time to build those skills. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we don't encourage people to go into some of the trades which are productive. It's almost a stigma. If you're not going to the college of choice, it's a stigma to you. And so to some degree, those are, those are jobs that are reasonably compensated. If you look at the real wage of skilled labor in uh, construction, it's been rising. Mm. And it's back above where it was mm. at the peak before the crisis. So there's, you know, there's no question that that, that is an yeah. issue. In the, in the final minutes we got left with you, what's in the oxygen in the air at College Station Economics? I mean, out of Phil Graham and, and Mr. Henseling, a House Financial Services Committee, they want to turn the Fed, Mr. Henseling wants to turn the Fed on its ear. What is it about A&M Graduate School Economics <laughs> that makes them on the edge of commies for Washington? <clears throat> oh, that's funny. Uh, well, there's no question. Uh, that Texas is a free market state. Really? So, and College Station is way over. College yeah. Station, I think it is the largest student body in a public university in the country that wow. voted majority Republican. Yeah. When I was there, it was the Reagan election, yeah. and 80% of the students voted for Reagan. Yeah. So very, it's very much a free market kind of an orientation. I will say this about the Fed. The, the fact that they chose to enter... The, to put in their portfolio assets from a particular sector is part of the reason that they're getting political pressure because they they, they advantage the housing mm -hmm. sector by buying mortgage-backed securities. So that is part of their political problem in the in the D.C. Yeah. market. Don't be a stranger, Douglas Duncan. Are you, are <laughs> Thank you, you. Where are you based? I mean, are you based in Washington? My office is in did Washington, D.C. Did they force you to move to Washington? They, they did, but I fly outside the Beltway a lot. Do you have to leave your cowboy boots at the front door? <laughs> oh, no. The people who say that don't understand cowboy boots. Yeah, they I know. Are, Do you like look hazies? I have Lucases, I have Tony Lamas, I yeah. have uh, I have four different brands. David Gurr, you didn't know I had a pair of those old two-tone Tony Lamas. I did not. I'm looking the at the desk right a, now, not on yeah. today. And the Lucchese low heels. I have six the pair in total. Yeah. Yeah. For They're office wear, the low, the low heels yeah. for office wear? No, the low heels so you don't trip <laughs> over them with a the guitar cable, <laughs> which is real. Doug Duncan, thank, thank you, you so much. Greatly Thanks. appreciate it. Never, and never, wonderful to have you here. He thank is you. with Fannie Mae. And, uh, give, what a, this is what surveillance is about, folks. John Miller one day appraising your abode, and then Doug Duncan from 60,000 feet on the next day. David Gurd and Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance. Now for a generous amount of time, one of my favorites, Jared Bernstein, joins us. He's with a senior fellow, ancient fellow, <laughs> grizzled fellow at the Center on Budget and Policy Administration. Let me cut to the chase, folks. This is the liberal that conservatives must read. Jared Bernstein, of course, with his public service and advising Vice President Biden, his view of liberal and Democrat politics, but also with a careful and respectful understanding of the middle terrain. Jared, is there a middle terrain in our political economics now, or is we as polarized as it seems? Well, there is, a middle ter there is a middle terrain, but it's awfully hard to find given the polarization. And you're absolutely right. Uh, absent that 
uh, middle ground, it's been very hard to yeah. uh, move anything. <clears throat> and I think way too many of our, our businesses are stuck with uh, a level of policy uncertainty right. that is uh, really pretty damaging. I want to cut to the chase because of time. We've got you here in our next section as well. What is going to be the new Democrat Party message? I know it's premature, progressives, and, you know, Secretary Clinton did this, Secretary Clinton did sure. that. Forget about that. Mm-hmm. What no, is I think the I, I, e- can, I can answer that for but you. But what's the economic part? Where are they going economically to win again? Uh, well, my, my, my answer to that would be that the, the message is uh, – Those of you who've been left behind by globalization and by inequality and by technological change, uh, President Trump said he would help you, but he's really not going to. We will. I think that's probably the message. Where's the we will versus a bunch of East and left coast, highly educated progressives that have lost touch with a core Democratic constituency? Well, so there's the problem with the way the the, the question you've teed up, which is that, you know, you ask what's going to be the Democratic message as if there's sort of this unified Democratic Party. Uh, I I think that the the group, the kind of elite uh, Democrat uh, uh, establishment uh, really took a hit in the last election. And there's a movement within the party to suggest that if we can't help the folks who've been left behind by economic change, then um, not sure we really can call ourselves Democrats. I remember going into the election, Jared, there was a lot of conversation about how the Republican Party was going to need to do a postmortem after November the 8th. And then, of course, the outcome was what it was. And the same conversation was happening about the Democratic Party. Is that conversation happening? Has it happened in Washington, D.C.? And and where is the the leadership on that conversation? Who's going to determine uh, the future of the Democratic Party? sense is that it's not happening enough. It's been almost too easy for Democrats to unify around the message that Donald Trump is really very problematic as a president, and particularly uh, in not really helping the people who he was elected to help. Uh, that, that's an important message. I don't want to uh, disparage it. But at the same time, uh, I think there has to be a, a positive message of the type that I suggested earlier. And I don't know that there's enough coalescing around that. You got a piece in the Post uh, this morning, the Washington Post this morning, a letter to the president. You're taking your pen to paper to write the president with some suggestions about how he can write uh, the ship. What's the, the first, the most paramount suggestion that you make? Well, first of all, it's, a, it's, it's from the other Jared. That's me. And, uh, you know, yeah. there's, a di- there's a different Jared yes. up there he's talking to, but I think he should talk to me. And what I said is he should really surprise everybody and come out and say, look, uh, Obamacare is certainly not where I would have started, but it's what we're stuck with. And you know, my job is to deliver on the promise that I made to people of comprehensive, affordable coverage. That is very much the promise he made. It's certainly yeah. not what the Republicans offered up. And he should form a bipartisan commission with Democrats. Democrats from both uh, cha- and Republicans from both chambers uh, assigned to figure out how to get majority votes in the House and filibuster-proof votes in the Senate to stabilize the insurance uh, industry and the policy uncertainty that I discussed earlier. To get to our next section, Jared, and to keep people around here, a really, really important question: Can we do fiscal economics and give up budget neutrality? You know, the the fiscal discussion has been really one of the most misleading and misguided of all, because there continue to be budgets put forth uh, that, if anything, are going to destabilize our fiscal accounts, uh, oftentimes with imaginary growth projections that simply aren't going to materialize, mm-hmm. and no plan B when we don't achieve 3 or 4% growth. So that's an area where I think we need yeah. much more 
uh, you know, m- much, much more thinking and work. Let's come back and do thinking and work with Jared Bernstein <laughs> uh, on this, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Really looking forward to that. In honor of uh, uh, McCormick's taking out French's mustard, mustard or ketchup on a hot dog? What does the Bernstein House do? I'm 61 years old. That's, that's mustard, right? I mean, you Thank know, I'm, you. A, I'm old school. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, old school. And Frank's hot sauce is a staple in my house. I don't. I don't know that an egg has been eaten in this house in ten years without Frank's hot I sauce. I will go out and make an acquisition we'll today of Frank's hot sauce. <laughs> so clearly, I'm missing. I'm missing something here, Jared. Um, back to Vice President Biden and your public service with him. He had an acute understanding of the legislative process. Are we prepared for tax reform? given the process that you see in place? Well, not tax reform, no. Uh, I think when, when your listeners, and I, I, I know you talk about this a lot, so they know what we're talking about, uh, when your listeners hear tax reform, uh, they probably think of a comprehensive overhaul of a, a system, particularly on the corporate side, that's really pretty much a hot mess. No, we're, we're, what we're going to see at the end of the day, if anything, are going to be tax cuts, uh, and again, unpaid for, so we get back to that fiscal problem I mentioned earlier, uh, probably more likely something on the corporate side than the individual side. But based on budget rules, it's not going to be bipartisan. It's going to be Republicans by themselves. And that means there's going to have to be a sunset built into the thing, kind of like what uh, Bush, too, did. So that's what I think we might be looking at. What's the what's the appetite for the, the you know a, a fuller version of tax reform? Are you are you one who believes that progress could have been made if this were started earlier? If it were perhaps the the conversation that preceded conversation about health care reform. If- it would have had to be a completely different conversation. Let me very simply explain to you why tax, quote, reform always founders in this town. Because tax reform simply means lowering the rates and broadening the base. Well, when you broaden the base, you've got to close loopholes. And remember, you know, my loophole is your favorite job creation program that you pay lobbyists hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to protect. So unless you're willing to do the legwork and work with the industries, work with the lobbyists, work with those who will resist their loopholes being closed, their tax expenditures, their favored aspects of the code, uh, you're never going to get to real reform. Uh, Tom, you don't know this, but when I was a rookie reporter, I would call Jared up when we got the jobs report to ask him what he saw in that that document, and uh, mm. you <laughs> used that in the pieces that I was pretty... Let me ask you what you're looking at lately, uh, Jared. We, we talk about the top-line number. We dig deep into uh, to various points of interest within the jobs report. Sure. What, what are you seeing now? Of course, there's the conversation, the ongoing conversation about wage growth or the lack uh, thereof. What are the, the, the bright spots uh, or the deficits as you see them in the jobs reports that we've been seeing lately? Well, you hit on a really important one. I do... I, I, the job market is closing in on full employment, uh, and the unemployment rate, while it, it probably is biased down somewhat by the, the fact that there's still some slack in labor force participation, a, uh, a non-trivial part of that decline has to do with retirement, but still, if you look at the prime age, it's there. Uh, and, and so you would expect there to be uh, more wage pressure than, than there is. And that's, that, I think, is the one outstanding point. And from a macroeconomic sense, if uh, the vast majority of wage earners, I mean, let's face it, most people don't uh, f- uh, finance their consumption out of their stock portfolios, it's out of their paycheck. And uh, even with relatively low inflation, uh, if, if wage growth kind of stagnates at somewhere around you know, 2 2.5%, I think it's going to be hard to fuel much in terms of consumption going forward. Are there? Are there? You okay? I'm okay. You know, I'm thinking. <laughs> what, what's your policy prescription for for getting wage growth higher? What can Washington do to to elevate that? 
Well, there's this group in Washington called the Federal Reserve, and I think they have a, a really important role to play in that regard. And I'm, I'm not saying that the, you know, they should never engage in any sort of tightening or, quote, normalization, as they put it. But I do think, given the lack of inflationary pressure and the fact that, really, our understanding of what the full employment rate is yeah. uh, has a huge confidence interval around it, I think the best thing the Fed can do is, uh, is let the labor market run hot for a while. And I think that will, yeah. in and of itself, create more wage pressure. In the time we got left with you, uh, Dr. Bernstein, I want to really look at the budget and the ballet towards mm-hmm. September. Uh, your uh, leader, Mr. Greenstein, Robert Greenstein, uh, at Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, really takes a harsh view. We know he's going to do that. He's died in the world liberal. I get all that. I looked at CBO executive summary, and I don't understand how those budget cuts get made. Are they a fiction, or can there actually be a committee debate in the House to cut whatever part of the budget, X percent? The the cuts that are being proposed are really unrealistic. And so when I look at these budget documents, like the resolution put out by the House yesterday, and and they have $700 billion in cuts in something called improper payments, well, you know, the, the Trump administration put about $150 billion in their budget, and CBO said it's not realistic. It's not going to happen. So then the, the, the House goes and pluses that up by 4 or 5x. Uh, it, it, these are nonsensical yeah, numbers. In a, in a given Department of Agriculture budget, okay, we can have austerity and have it lift by 1% versus nominal GDP up 4%, or we can flatline it, which is a rare, rare occurrence, folks. How do you cut an actual budget that affects American citizens and their good representatives? Well, I think that you can do it from 40,000 feet by going on about wasteful... Yeah, right, but can you do it in committee? No, you can't. I mean, and in fact, you wouldn't wouldn't necessarily want to. I'm not saying every dollar spent is perfect. No, but there's people down there that want to. No, but the, the fact is that the population is growing, inflation is growing, we have an aging population. So the functions, that, we saw this in the healthcare debate, the functions that government does are actually things that people want. Medicaid matters, and not just to liberals, but to Republicans and to governors. So Medicaid matters, and if you go out there and you say we're going to cut it by 25%, guess what? People have a problem with that. So I, I'd love everybody to get a little bit more realistic in this discussion. Okay. <laughs> not enough time. Jared Bernstein, uh, David Gurr will be calling you just <laughs> day to get quote uh, at some point. Mr. Bernstein, a legend in his own time, center in budget and policy priorities. David Gurr, what what gets me going here is whatever anybody's politics, you lose so much less political capital by just saying, look, we want to be responsible and flatline or come 100 basis points under real or nominal GDP. You know, the calculus can be decided versus this draconian set, which is, that's one person's opinion. I get it. But how does that get through a given committee I, for the life of me? Yeah, I don't see I don't way understand through as well, that. and I wonder if we're going to meet Mr. Bernstein on the edge of that precarious fiscal cliff here uh, in a little while uh, as well, of course, as we near the uh, range of the debt ceiling here at the uh, middle of October, I believe is the latest estimate that we've Early to, to mid-October is when we're going to Watching the Spice that. Company from Baltimore, McCormick, they buy French's mustard down 7%, now down only 5.6%, rallying off the bottom here, down 5.6%. Frank's Red Hot. Never eaten an egg without Frank's Red Hot. I'm gonna. We'll bring a bottle in tomorrow. We had an informed listener say, "All it is is Tabasco for poor people." <laughs> Love it. Thank you for that email. Greatly, greatly appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.